Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. With some clever new card skimmer tech, we've got just one more reason you should watch your wallet at the gas pump. Plus, some handy recommendations for Postgres migrations, and Dan dives deep into his quest for the ultimate boot and nuke experience. Plus, your feedback, a ridiculous roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 332, broadcast in front of a live IRC audience. This episode is also brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me is uh, the man I wouldn't trust my hard drives around this week. That's right. It's the one, the only... It's Dan. Welcome to the show uh, today, Dan. G'day. I'm getting rid of hard drives. Yeah, that's right. And you know how to do it. Take it Destroying seriously and you contents. get it done. Yep. With an eye towards yep. security. But, okay, yep. so that's exciting. We've got a great show today, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Not only mm-hmm. we do get to do like a deep dive into this whole this whole project that you've been doing, but, of course, we've got some really good feedback, a great roundup, and some other stories to talk about. So, I guess... Unless you have anything you want to lead in with, we should just jump right in so we can get right into your uh, yep. fun adventures. Can't think of anything. Let's go. Perfect. So, first up, what do you have for us? First up, Krebs on security. Earlier this week, I read some stuff about skimmers uh, that use SMS. Now, a skimmer is a thing that reads your card as you put it in into the machine that you're going to use. And, and the most common place you see them is at ATMs, or you see reports of them as at ATMs, because you get the cards all the time, you skin the debit card, and then you just empty the person's bank account with the information that you gather. But what they're doing now is they're also targeting gas pumps. But what they used to have is a little thing that fit inside and it would skim what you had and you could always sort of see it because it was outside. And mo- <coughs> excuse me. And also this week I saw notices of uh, how to detect, how to use a, a uh, Bluetooth scanner, which you can get on, on your phone to see whether or not there's a Bluetooth device around where you're just about to put in your card. And that's a good idea. But this gets rid of that. So I'll start reading this bit of the article and and it'll make more sense. Skimming devices that crooks install inside fuel station gas pumps frequently rely on an embedded Bluetooth component, allowing thieves to collect stolen credit card data from the pumps wirelessly with any mobile device. So basically they get the Wi-Fi thing sitting there and I'm not actually sure if they download it live or if they drive by and then say, hey, listen, give me all your data. I don't know which it is. If it's a former, they're going to have to hang around there and they're, they'll be pretty obvious. So I'm going to guess it's the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, the downside of this approach is that Bluetooth-based skimmers can be de- detected by anyone with a mobile device because you can just see what's out there to pair. Now investigators in, in, 
in New York say they are starting to see pump skimmers that use cannibalized cell phone components to send stolen credit card data via text message. Now, these little units you used to use before with the Bluetooth stuff would sort of sit on the outside and they might be battery driven, like just a small little battery. So either you have to retrieve it and refresh the battery or something. But these things are totally inside the gas pump. They're not in the wow. card reader. They're inside the gas pump. And, of course, they're using the power from the gas pump so they can run forever. And if they don't get detected, you're not going to find them. Oh, that's an oxymoron. Anyway. Okay. So, skimmers that transmit stolen credit card data wirelessly via GSM text messages and other mobile-based communications are not new. They have been present, if not prevalent, in ATM skimming devices for ages. That I didn't know. Uh, But this is the first instance Krebs and Security is aware of in which such SMS skimmers have been found inside gas pumps. And that matches the experience of several states hardest hit by pump skimming activity. And my first question here, here is... Who worries about physical security of gas pumps? What are you going to do? Break into it and you're not going to get anything out of it. You're not going to get free gas out of it. So I can imagine the security of this has been pretty – security of gas pumps has not been high, high on people's radar. But do you recall an instance where um, – People change the software in the gas pumps to shortchange the consumer. Oh, so yeah, that does sound familiar. At the beginning of pumping, it would report everything correctly. In the middle of pumping, it would shortchange you. And then at the end of the pumping, it would go back to being accurate. And, and the reason they did the middle is because that's how people would test them, is they would just bring in a container and fill it up. Right? And that's only a gallon. It's not going to be 13 gallons. Yikes. And the reason they did it at the end is because that's where you're, when you're going to be watching, I think, that's when you're going to be watching the pump and the numbers rolling back. But, yeah, they did this. It was just a change in the software on the gas pumps. So that that's the logical – that's the security of the software. But – and so the reason that they did that is to make more money. They could sell 13 gallons of gas, only pump you 10, and you're not going to notice. Right. I mean, you don't really have a you don't have a lot of effective yeah. ways unless you're trying to look for that or you know yeah. measuring it, it yourself. It, it, uh, unless you say, "How the hell did I get 16 gallons?" <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, but they're not going to do that. It's going to say it put in 13. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to be able to do that. Somehow they're able to do that because otherwise I would notice that, oh, I only I usually put in 13. I only got 10 this time. <laughs> yeah. You'd notice that. So it must have been a small amount. Couldn't have been a significant amount mm-hmm. that you'd notice. Maybe half a gallon difference. Yeah, that, yeah. that I could see, right? You're like, oh, I wasn't as yeah. empty as I thought it was or something like that. B- because a half gallon, you're not going to notice a half gallon. Exactly. And that's what they do. They're doing this on volume. It's a bit like the 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 guy that uh, changed the interest calculating program for the bank and took all the fractions of cents and put it into his own account, a separate account, 
and no one noticed because it it all evened out, right? Yeah, right. Small it's, amounts it's, and yeah. Small small amounts, rounding errors. You're not going to see it, but when you do the big figures, it's still going to match. So anyway, back to what Krebs was saying. The beauty, uh, the beauty of GSM-based skimmers is that it can transmit stolen card data wirelessly via text message, meaning thieves can receive real-time transmissions of the card data anywhere in the world, never needing to return to the scene of the crime. That data can then be turned into counterfeit physical copies of the cards, you know, very quickly, too, within the length of time it takes you to make the card, you can be out there using it before something happens. Like other card, like other pump skimmers, this device was hooked up to the pump's internal power, allowing it to operate indefinitely without relying on batteries. It's it's just so clever. Um, I can see, uh, l- looking at the diagram of this thing, you can see one, two cables. One cable is for power. The other must be for data because they m- must be inserting this. You, you can see one cable that then matches up with a connector on the bottom. That's going to be put in into the pump's data cable. They're going to um, unplug that, plug the data cable into that, and then plug the other end of this device in there. So they're just inserting themselves serially into the data cable of the pump. Um, and by data cable, I mean the... Um, the data that flows from the keypad and, and the, the card the card unit. So all they do is they monitor all the data coming through, record it, and then keep passing it along. Yeah, they're just they're just like transparently there in the middle. Yep, yep. Clever. So it's a man, it's a man on the middle, which you never see because all it does is it passes on the data. <laughs> right, it doesn't change anything. Or, yeah. Yep. Hmm. yep. So if the data was encrypted between this the card reader and the thingy, but anyway. Right. So, skimmers used at all three New York filling stations impacted by the scheme included T-Mobile SIM cards, but the investigators said analysis so far showed the cards held no other data other than the SIM's unique serial code. Couldn't get anything out of that. So, um, officials in all three states said they've yet to find a GSM-based skimmer attached to any of their pumps. But... Um, all th- by all three states, yeah, I, I missed the previous paragraph where he ta- talks about Arizona, California, and Florida. Skimmers at the pump are most often the work of organized crime rings that traffic in everything from stolen credit cards and debit cards to the wholesale theft and commercial resale of fuel. And in some cases, from and back to the very fuel stations that have been compromised with the gang's skimming devices. So they steal gas and sell it back to the gas station they sold it from. <laughs> That's amazing. Investigators say skimming gangs typically gain access to pumps by using a handful of master keys that still open a great many pumps in use today. In a common scenario, one person will distract the station attendant as fuel thieves pull up alongside the pump in a van with doors that obscure the machine on both sides. Have you ever seen... Um, uh, signs at gas stations say trucks must use outer lane. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why. That makes sense. 
for an in-depth look at the work on one fuel theft gang working out of San Diego, he has a link there, and that, that link will be in the show notes. Uh, fraud patterns show theft gangs tend to target stations that are close to major highway arteries. Those with older pumps and those without security cameras and or a regular schedule for inspecting security tape placed on the pumps. If you're going to put security tape, make sure the security tape is still taped. Yeah, no kidding. Otherwise, it's just a kind of empty threat. Yeah, what's it, what's it for? Many filling stations are upgrading their pumps to include more physical security, such as custom locks and security cameras. In addition, newer pumps can accommodate more secure chip-based payment cards that are already in use by other G20 nations. Now, I want to do a shout-out to Apple Pay, because in this case, if you used Apple Pay, they cannot use that. Because what happens with Apple Pay is the vendor only gets a token. They never get your card details. So they get a token. It's an agreement between the vendor and Apple Pay. It doesn't go through a third party. um, uh, It doesn't go to a third party. Uh, Now I'm beginning to doubt what I'm saying. The vendor only gets a token with Apple Pay. They do not know anything about the customer. They don't have your name, your address, anything like that. In return... Apple doesn't know anything about what you bought. So Apple doesn't get any details of what it is that you purchased. They just know that you purchased it from this company. So I like Apple Pay. Uh, I'm sure there are other similar uh, payment systems that, that operate on a token basis as well. But but it's a good example have, of, you know. You don't have to use your card. Exactly. How it has real world, uh, you know, security wins yep. that can help you in these kinds of situations. And you're you're about to say it shows you what? Shows you what? Yeah, I thought you were about to say something about it. Just goes to show. No, I don't know. Maybe I will. Okay, okay, I missed it. So now there there are some things here about what Visa is doing. So. Some stations are taking advantage of recent moves by Visa to delay adding much-needed security improvements such as chip-capable readers. So basically, Visa has told them, hey, listen, you don't need to have these chip things in until this date. So okay. the station is like, yay, we're not going to do this We won't do it until a, a day before. Be- because we don't need it yet. Yeah. <clears throat> the best advice one can give to avoid pump scanners is to frequent stations that appear to place an emphasis on physical security. More importantly, some pump skinning devices are capable of stealing debit card pins as well. So it's a good idea to avoid paying with a debit card at the pump. In fact, I only use my debit card at my bank's ATM. And the reason I do that is because if your debit card stuff is taken, they can drain your bank account. It's not like a credit card where you can say, okay, look, this is fraud. And they'll say, oh, yes, it is, and just deny the transaction. Armed with your PIN and debit card, thieves can clone the card and pull money out of your account at an ATM. Having your checking account emptied of cash while your bank sorts out the situation can be a huge hassle and create secondary problems. Bounce checks, for instance. So, yeah. I try not to use my debit card anywhere but at my bank's ATM for that reason. So, um, 
now you can't scan for Bluetooth devices. Well, you still can, because I'm sure they're going to continue to exist. Um, if you go to the show notes after this, uh, have a read through the comments in the linked article, because some of them are very interesting. Uh, I had a chance to get through some of them, but there's about oh, 81 comments here, and it was very interesting reading. Not, not a lot of uh, crap that you sometimes get in some posts about people bickering over something, but they actually have some informed questions. Yeah, exactly. I thought so too, which was, uh, hey, nice to see. Uh, that's what a healthy comment section should be. Uh, yes. Right. Well, uh, thank you for that. That was a fascinating story. If, uh, if like me, the audience is being like, boy, that was a clever use of GSM technology, I'd like to do something not so nefarious, but, you know, similarly clever, but you, you don't want to pay for all that. My friends, we have a solution. That's right. It's the one, the only, techsnap.ting.com. Head on over there. You'll find a smarter way to do mobile. Lines start at just $6 a month. So, you know, you, you have a couple of your uh, your clever new creations that you've been working on, a, a new a new gadget to, to measure something, anything that you need to communicate at $6 a month. It makes it super simple. When you need to turn it on, turn it on. When you don't need it for a month, turn it off. Ching has an incredible dashboard uh, as well as, you know, real humans you can talk to and a- an awesome app that you can do pretty much anything you need. So if you've already got a smartphone, once you're on Ting, you can use the app, configure your service, add new devices. They make it super simple, 21st century. They get it. You don't want to have to, you know, jump through a lot of hoops just to change something about your service. Speaking of that service, it comes with everything you would expect. So things like three-way calling, tethering, boom, included. And none of the stuff you don't want. No early termination fees, no giant contracts where you have to very carefully try to estimate the the up, you know, the upward bound of the potential usage you might have for the whole contract period. Otherwise, you're just you're not getting a good deal, but you also don't want to pay overage chargers if you go above what you've paid for. Now, nah, that's crazy. Ting says, nonsense. Jump on over to Ting. Head on over to the rates page. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, that'll get you a $25 service credit. Then it's just pay for what you use. So lines, $6 each. Minutes, Boom, right there in the table. Check that out. Super reasonable prices. Pay for what you use. They have buckets. Figure out which bucket you fall in. That's how much you pay. Text messages, same thing. Maybe you're maybe you're clever. Maybe you don't use minutes or text messages. In that case, it's just data. And they've got super competitive rates. Tethering's included. You just use your data however you want. They can be your mobile ISP. I use Ting for that all the time, and it's great. You can bring your own device, or they have a great shop with a ton of nice phones. You can, uh, you know, if you go buy a new phone from them, you can use that $25 service credit right over there. So whatever you're doing, whether you need a new home, new phone line for yourself, a backup phone for when you go camping, uh, or maybe for, you know, a friend or a relative who doesn't have a phone and could use one, or you want to make sure you can stay in contact. There's a million uses for Ting. It's got GSM and CDMA. What are you waiting for? Head on over to techsnap.ting. Dot com. And thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Woo! Okay, so with that out of the way, you've been up to something, sir. Is that right? I have. I have. 
In the recent past, I mentioned that I had some hard drives I needed to get rid of. Yeah. And before I get rid of them, I, I want to erase what's on them because, well, it's highly unlikely that people can get anything out of value out of there. But, you know, they could have chat logs on them. Yeah, right. I mean, your pri- personal privacy is important, and there's kind of a there's a principle here. Uh, there will be password files on there. Yeah. Uh, there'll be code repos. There'll be backups of all kinds of different stuff. So who knows? You may no. even have some, you know, files that that were other people's or maybe sensitive to other people. Accumulated. There could be all kinds of stuff. Yeah, th- there'll be chat logs of IRC channels yeah. and stuff like that. That no, don't want that going out. Now it may not necessarily be private stuff. It may be public stuff, but still. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to get out there. So, uh, looking back through my Twitter timeline, I found that on Thursday, Thursday, no, Sunday at about five twenty, I posted that it was time to get serious. I was going to run DBen, which is Derek's boot and nuke, which is uh, an old piece, not an old piece of software, but it's been around for a while. Basically. It'll just it'll overwrite all of your hard drives that are in your system, and you can actually create an automated version of it. Where you, you just basically throw in the CD and say "go," and boot, you boot, and it'll erase all the hard drives. Very useful if, for some reason, you have stuff on there that you need to get rid of right away. Right. I mean, and then make sure that you you know carefully label that uh, that USB yes. drive and or um, CD. I believe. I've written on it with Big Marker that says this program destroys hard drives. <laughs> Just it's written right on the CD in Perfect. big black marker. Yeah, clear as day. Yes, um, but I have a feeling that if you need to destroy hard drives in a hurry, there are better ways of doing it than this. And I'm sure that people have stuff that's just ready to crunch them or something. I, I don't know. Right, or like the the things that are the yeah. degaussers and other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. It it wasn't even you know I did this at five eighteen and at five forty two my cousin emails uh, replies in the tweet and says it's drive abuse you don't have to do DBAN and basically he says um, the 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 link that he provides is is a challenge where uh, someone says hey listen we've DD zero onto all of these drives and I decided to contact these drive recovery companies to say hey listen how about you recover something off these drives for us and they even tell you what the directory structure is and what the file is named just tell us what's in that file and we'll give you 50 bucks all the drive recovery companies said nope won't be able to do that they challenged a whole bunch of people to do it and it never got taken up and this is back in January 2008, and it was open there for a year, and nobody won. So they said, you cannot write data to the drive or disassemble the drive, and basically, it didn't work. Nobody did it. Well, there so, we go. So, yeah. Yep. Now, okay, I figured DD might be enough, but I wanted to get D-band going. And I, I tried running it, and then, you know, not long after after uh, Scott replied, well, actually, it was several hours after Scott replied, said, D-Band isn't running anyway. Maybe time to just DD, because D-Band, when I ran it, just went straight to that screen, didn't see any of the drives. 
Now, I later found out that I the I had all my drives hooked up to an uh, SAS 2308 card, which basically has, uh, I think, I forgot, 8087 plugs, uh, a breakout cable. So anyway, that card couldn't be seen by FreeBSD either. I put that uh -oh. card in another, I tried another card, it couldn't see that, I tried another card, it couldn't see that. Then I put the card into a different slot, and boom, it could see the drives under FreeBSD. But that, that was much later in, in the process. So, interestingly enough, Adam Thompson, who helps out with the hotels uh, uh, for the conferences, said he wishes that DeepN would support ATA Secure Erase instead of or as well as all the old word techniques that don't actually erase the whole drive. So ATA Secure Erase, as far as I could tell, is a hardware-implemented erase. Right. And I'd never used that, never heard of it before. But now, my next uh, – later that day, I posted a, a photograph of my highly recommended NAS configuration, which is basically six hard drives sitting on a table with cables going into the drive. And I'm sure that we know someone who can do a much better job at NAS than I can. Now, I know this is a point where we said we'd, we'd break, but I haven't covered everything yet. So I'm going to jump back and cover that. You just and keep go back. on going. I'll, we'll get there. So what I tried next was uh, I went, I said, okay, maybe my hardware um, is too new for D-Band because this CD was, uh, I hadn't updated it. It in, in years, I'm sure. So I have no idea what version was on there. So I went and looked up dband.org, and dband.org just redirected to something else called Blanco. And so I went and looked at uh, Wikipedia, and I found that in September of 2012, Blanco of Finland announced its acquisition of dband. So I said, okay, they'll give me a buy. Uh, uh, their version of the code to try for free. So I sent the email off and registered and got the email back. Okay. Well, you jumped through some, some hoops here just to try this thing out. Yeah. And they sent me the code, and it's a Windows binary. Uh, of course it is. I was disappointed. Yeah. So then I wrote back and said, hey, listen, this is no use to me. Please remove me from all your... I don't want to whatever. boot a Windows uh, PE thing yeah. to run no, your crazy... I, I, don't have Windows, I don't have Windows to run. Yeah, exactly. Well, I could run up a VM, but... Okay, so then I found out there's an unofficial fork of D-Band that is actively maintained. This is in the Wikipedia article. The D-White program that D-Band uses has been forked and is available as a standalone program called N-Wipe which is actively maintained. Uh, and that's done by Martin Van Brummelen. I'm sure I've, I've said his name poorly, but Martin, thank you. There also appears to be another, at least one other unofficial D-Band fork, and I'm sure there's several, uh, called Hellfire. So I went and looked at the NWIPE page, and I saw that NWIPE is included with Parted Magic, which... I sort of thought sounded a lot like partition magic. Do you remember? I do, yeah. Yeah, I, I had heard about it. And parted magic is, a, is basically a whole Linux desktop environment 
that costs you 11 bucks. So I paid my 11 bucks and downloaded uh, it. Uh, I got 2017-0603 version of Parted Magic. And they recommend in order to create a, a bootable USB drive to use UNet Bootin. Have you ever used that? Oh, because that's funny that that's what they recommend. That's what they recommend. So I used that. It was also free, and they had a Mac OS X version. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, there's some better. There's some better tools that exist now, and perhaps we can cover those in a future update. We, but it worked. Yeah. Uh, well, no, it didn't. It wouldn't create the with the version of Partition Magic. Sorry. Parted Magic, magic that right. I downloaded, I couldn't create a bootable USB thumb drive. Okay. So I said, bugger this, and U-Bootin comes with a built-in um, download. So you, you can say, okay, these are all the distributions that it'll install for you. Uh-huh. Like, And I said, install Parted Magic, use the latest live, which I think was 2.4, and that would boot. And that's what I ran, and that's what I used. Awesome. Okay, great. And so now we can talk about who can do a better NAS configuration than I do. Okay. Well, I guess first that we should we should take some time for, you know, our next sponsor this evening. And that is mm-hmm. if you're concerned about this sort of thing, if you're interested in building your own NAS wiping discs or the, uh, you know, intimate details of uh, ATA secure erase, you'll probably be interested in IX systems. Why do I think that? Because IX system is like the, the premier hardware vendor that you wish you had heard about years ago. I mean, from their partnerships with people like Intel and the incredible Intel processors they use in their servers to their relationships really really with everyone that they work with, and especially their customers, IX is in a league of their own. They've been here through, you know, dot-com bubbles and bursts. They know, they know how to work with open-source software. In fact, go to TechSnap, excuse me, IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. There you'll find the ultimate guide to buying hardware for open source software. And that's just that's a great white paper. It'll show you how much IX Systems really knows and how they're prepared to work with you on any scale of project. Looking around at their site, you'll see, you know, you'll see some big names, people like Splunk, NASA, UC Berkeley, Yelp, Disney. Uh, they're experts in storage and and servers and and building reliable top-notch hardware at a great price. They've got a team of super talented sales engineers waiting by the phones, ready to take your call, and who will form an awesome partnership with you to make sure that you know your next server, be it a custom server, uh, a new FreeNAS Mini you want for your home office, or a true rack for the new data center you're building. It doesn't matter; they're there for you, and they've got the expertise. So you can desp- describe your problem domain. They are there to help shape that and make sure that you get exactly the hardware you want. Burn in tested. You know, hard drives already used, made sure that they won't fail, shipped, configured exactly as you want to your data center, ready to rack the whole thing. You know, it, that, that X Systems knows what they're doing. Check out their blog. You'll find some of the awesome projects that they're involved with. They, they do a ton of great open source work, whether it be, you know, the FreeNAS project itself uh, or, or OpenCFS, something that they, you know, contribute to frequently and have a lot of expertise in. You'll see them at all the 
Linux or BSD or storage conferences around. And it shows that, you know, they're involved in the community. They care. And it helps them stay abreast. And you can have confidence that, you know, whether you're deploying an old technology or a new technology, IX Systems will have the expertise to be a great partner uh, as you grow your business or grow your project or just have some fun you know, playing with Von Hardware. Get, get yourself an, a, a free NAS Mini. You won't regret it. You can get them right on Amazon, or you can get them custom configured from IX. They're super easy to get started with. You get that awesome free NAS management UI. And it's a great way to start playing with uh, OpenZFS, which, why haven't you done so already? I'm sure IX would agree. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That'll get you started. You get a, that great white paper. Call them up. Start talking about whatever project you have in mind. And uh, we look forward to hearing about the awesome system IX builds for you. All right. Thank you, Mr. Dan. So speaking of awesome systems. Yes. So back to back to what I was playing with on on um parted magic uh eventually i i couldn't get anyone to see my hard drives if they're plugged into the sas 2308 card which is basically a rebadged lsi card and they're fairly popular with the freenas home folks so finally I plug things into the, directly into the motherboard, but the motherboard only has four connectors on it. So I tried NWIPE for the first time. And when I first tried NWIPE, I was misled by some of the information it gave me. It said, hey, listen, uh, this is about to start running, and it's going to take this long and this long. And so the first four drives were the same number, and the last drive was a different number. And I thought, oh, it's already started in on that drive, and it's going to take less time. But I was wrong. The time it showed was how long it's going to take for that drive to complete, and one of the drives must have been slightly smaller or a different speed or something like that. Because I came back an hour or so later and uh, opened up a terminal session, and someone had mentioned that you should look to see if HD param is running. And yes, I found four instances of HD param, and that's what was doing the secure race, which I'm sure is the hardware-level secure race that you can do on ATA drives. These are SATA drives, but they're still ATA. I'm getting that right, am I? In terms of the secure race, it's a hardware-level thing that'll run on... I keep thinking of PATA and SATA, but they're still ATA drives. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I got those four drives done. Uh, they ran overnight, and it, and it worked just fine. The, uh, now, the NWIPE is actually... Um, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. I ran Partition Magic first, and I actually did use their... N, their um, NWIPE. Did I use their NWIPE first or whatever? No, I yeah, I used NWIPE, the secure race, and that worked just fine. And then, so then I went to the next four drives and ran um, uh, DBAN overnight. Now, NWIPE is the new one, right? Yeah. So I, I used the secure race first and then used NWIPE, which is D, DBAN. DBAN ran overnight, took 13 hours, took way too long. So I decided not to do that again. So uh, late yesterday, when I got that, when um, 
the deep end version had finished, which took 13 hours. I then started, uh, I wanted to do eight drives at once. I didn't want to just do four drives at once, which is what the motherboard would allow me. I wanted to use my SAS cards with the uh, uh, 8087 uh, breakout cables. Um, so it didn't work in this slot. It didn't work with a different card. Oh. So then I said, okay, so it, it's booting it. Like I'm looking at the, uh, at the boot messages and even under FreeBSD, I was not seeing the LSI card. The LSI card was not showing up in the BIOS, you know, has our, um, um, SAS, uh, SAS cards, uh, will do a little booting up process. And then you see a list of the drives. Well, I wasn't seeing that during the boot process. So then I said, well, it sees the um, old SCSI card that's in there. So I took the SCSI card out. I took the um, 10 gig uh, um, fiber optic card out and moved the SCSI card over into the first slot. And then when I booted up, it saw the LSI card. The card recognized all eight drives. So then I was going to do another uh, parted magic uh, secure erase. And this time, I took some photographs of what you can see in there. And if you hover over the, the device, uh, say, dev slash SDD. By the way, I did say this is Linux, and I paid for the Linux, and I'm not ashamed of that. <laughs> I love it. That's my secret it, favorite part it, of the It actually episode. shows you SSD2, SSD3, and SSD1. And it actually recognizes that the size of the partition says that they're all ZFS members. So that was pretty cool that it would show me that information. Uh, and then if I hover over one of the devices, it actually gives you the serial number, the firmware version, um, all kinds of other information in there that I haven't seen before, but I'm sure it's all available through uh, SmartD, through Smart Control. So there I am. I'm all set up to wipe eight drives. And they're running right now out there, eight drives at once. Um, uh, I took another beautiful photograph of, of this time now of eight drives sitting on the table. They're actually not on the table anymore. They're on boxes because the power cables won't reach close enough. Um, I actually had to use some uh, Y splitters because the, the box only had uh, enough power uh, connectors for six drives, but okay. I wanted to run eight. So that will probably finish sometime after I've gone to bed. How many total uh, drives do you have? Uh, I think at least 19 to white. And I've done eight, so I'll be at 16 here. And I have three more over here. And then I think, uh, so So it's 19 three terabyte drives I'm getting rid of. So there's three more to do here. And then there's a stack two, four, six, seven drives over there, which are drives of varying sizes that I don't really need anymore. Wow. This is a whole production. So it, it's taken me three days to wipe eight drives. Yeah. But now that, I, now that I'm here, I think I can wipe 16 drives a day if I tried. Yeah, seems like you're pretty reasonably happy with the solution. Uh, what would you say to someone who's watching and, and wants to, uh, what if they want a free BSD only solution for wiping their, right, wiping their drives? I, I tried that, but I would have to write a little script, open eight different windows mm -hmm. or to, to run DD 
in the background. But doing, but that's still that'll only wipe the the physical platter. So it won't wipe as much as the secure thing will do. Right. I'm sure there's a way. There must be a way to initiate that command under FreeBSD. I mean, you're just talking to the device and issuing a command. Right. Yeah, you would think so. Whether or not it's actually supported right now or not, I don't know. But that would be interesting to look into. Th- this is a very handy little program. It just boots up and it runs, and it gives me a little graphic interface. I had to had to track down a mouse. <laughs> I haven't used a desktop desktop mouse in years. So I had to go and track down a mouse to get this working. So that might be my yeah. least favorite part of the whole thing, but but it is nice. I can appreciate the PL two of you know, especially now if you have it set up, and next time you need to do this, you don't have to remember a whole bunch of like specific things necessarily. You can just all right, here we go. I'm going to boot up with this, get my get my wipe on, and be done. Yep, yep. Well, that's why I use DBAN because I didn't have to remember anything, and it would just it would just wipe it. And like Adam Thompson said, DBAN doesn't wipe the whole thing. If you use the secure erase, from what I understand, it's a hardware-level erase implemented by the manufacturer. So they're clearing out everything. Yeah. Excellent. So I, I feel confident enough in this that I'm going to sell these drives on eBay. Um, I'm at, if I really have enough time, I'll plug them all in again and, and sort of look at the uh, smart CTL oh, yeah. information and say, hey, list, they have me- this many hours, they have th- that many. But then I have to post 19 <laughs> different outputs of this. Yes. People say, well, no, I want that drive and that drive and that drive, but not that drive. And you have to have it like, labeled or something? This is a whole ordeal. Well, they're, they're all... I'd just go off the secure, uh, serial numbers. Oh, yeah, okay, there you go. Yeah. Be fine. So, but yeah, that... In a perfect world, that's what the consumer would get, but I don't think that's what they're going to have. Not until you start running your own uh, disk wiping service. You hear that, yes, audience? Se- you can just send him your disk. Send me your drives, and I promise not to read what's on them. I'll just wipe them for you. Yeah. Woo! There we go. Uh, I like that a lot. Excellent. Well, uh, any takeaways you have for everyone if they want to start playing with this at home? Um, or. Um. I have some really good. Um, oh wow, these aren't quite so good. I have some really nice um, disc containers, but you can see that little piece of white stuff that's sort of like in the wrong spot. That is actually supposed to be on the top lid, and they've fallen off. I may have to start asking for a refund. See here, there's this little sticky thing that's supposed to sit on the top like that. That's supposed to cushion the drive when you put it in. I recommend getting decent cases for storing your hard drives in when they're not in a in a, in a computer case. Otherwise, they get knocked around really badly. Um, yeah, I, I think that DD is enough for this, but I prefer the secure erase. I imagine that the DD may not erase everything. What about hidden sectors or, or bad sectors? But if they're bad, how can you read them? Yeah, I, I, I like the hardware level erase. So if you can do that, do that. And I, I know that Parted Magic will do that for you. There we go. Yeah, it is funny that that uh, it does certainly remind me. I remember Partition Magic from the old days. I definitely run that a few times. Um. 
Uh, I remember it, but I, I don't remember using it for anything. I guess you didn't have quite the scale of uh, disk erasure problems that you do now. No. Is that what you could use it for? You could use it for erasing? I think you could use it for erasing, but you could also, I mean, I think I mostly used it for partitioning. I remember it had a whole, like, you could k- kind of configure all your partitions, and then it would hook into into Windows, so you could reboot, and then it would boot into a special, like, <laughs> mode where it would then repartition everything for you, and then reboot and, and boot back in without you having to you know, figure out how to do that yourself or even make a Windows PE boot disk or anything like that. So it was pretty yeah. slick at the time. Well, looking at the screenshot I have here, part of Magic, it does partition, clone, rescue, and erase. So I'm sure there's other stuff in there that I haven't actually looked at. I only got it for the erase bit, so it may be useful for people for more than just that. Have you ever heard of it before, Parted Magic? No. I mean, actually, it does kind of sound familiar, but I don't think I've ever actually looked at using it or anything. Oh, yeah, they got like some good um, topics here on their website about Secure Erase yeah. and uh, N- NVMe Secure Erase, which... Yeah, yeah. And, and the disk cloning is very, very cool. And the, the screenshots sort of don't do it justice, really. Um, I, I noticed, though, that when running DPAN... The CPU usage was much higher, but if you look at the screenshot on the page, if I look now, it's hardly any CPU at all when it's doing the hardware level because it's not—it's no CPU; it's all hardware. Right? It's all—it's all offloaded there. Yeah. Excellent. So, yeah. Well, it's nice to know that there's a there's a good solution out there uh, if you have a similar problem, and uh, go check go take a look at Dan's Twitter feed, and I'm sure he'll have a. Uh, further more updates about this fascinating topic yes i will excellent okay well with that it's time for our final sponsor for today's program if you are like me and you're like boy that sounds like that's, that's kind of a hassle i don't know if i want to deal with that yeah i could go get my own server uh, or deal with with all of these 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 drives and wiping them or i could just head on over to digitalocean.com yeah, just go to DigitalOcean.com. You can use our promo code. We've got a super awesome promo code because DigitalOcean is super awesome. It's SnapOcean. One word, SnapOcean. That'll get you started with a $10 credit. Head on over to their pricing page and you'll see why that's so awesome. Yeah, it turns out prices start at $5 a month for your very own droplet. Now, that's DigitalOcean lingo for a VPS but this isn't this isn't your grandmother's VPS. No, it's not OpenVZ. It's not some sort of weird container. It's real virtualization using the KVM hypervisor. They've got great bandwidth going right into that hypervisor. They've got the latest and greatest OSs from Container Linux, FreeBSD, Fedora, Ubuntu, Debian, pretty much whatever you need. And if you don't find what you need, there's tons of cool guides for, you know, switching things over to NetBSD or Dragonfly or Arch Linux or Really, because it's you know it's that it's that awesome virtualization. You can do whatever you want. That's the power of DigitalOcean. Plus, it's all on super fast SSDs. For five dollars a month, you can get five twelve MB of memory, one CPU, twenty gigs of those SSD disks, and a whopping one terabyte of transfer. Tying it all together, though, you know you might be like, okay, well that sounds great. Those prices are amazing. I haven't even told you just how easy this is to use. 55 seconds, boom, done. Taken care of. You're started out. You've deployed your new blog. You've deployed your new Mumble server or IRC bouncer. Whatever project that you need, DigitalOcean is there, ready and waiting. 
to host whatever you want. They've got all kinds of great new features. They've got an incredible API, tons of great apps, and an incredible web dashboard. So whether you need new load balancers, monitoring, high CPU droplets, attachable block storage, firewalls, private networking, all of those things are now standard at DigitalOcean, easy to use, simple to get started with, and all designed to make it so that, like, you have an easy time of understanding. It's not like some of their competitors that are, you know, a mess of an API, a thousand different windows that you have to navigate through who are constantly switched between. DigitalOcean has amazing team support and world-class documentation. I really mean that. They've partnered with the community. They have real editors who take those incredible community submissions and turn them into top-notch documents. It's become like now, if you just kind of Google for a Linux topic or a web server topic, or, hey, I need to configure a PHP and Apache, you'll probably find a DigitalOcean article. And that's a good thing because they're great articles. So what are you waiting for? Use our promo code, SNAPOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com and uh, go build something awesome and make sure you tell us about it. Thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to today's feedback segment. That's right. It's the time in the show where we hear from you, our wonderful audience. So first up, uh, Anian Ziegler writes to us about a question about database migrations. Hello, Dan and Wes. First up, I have to say I really like your show. And in fact, I'm listening to nearly all JB shows on a daily basis. Hey, that's awesome. I've learned a lot about Linux security and the open source world. So thank you very much for all the work you are doing. And I'll just add in all the work everyone else at JB is doing. It's great. Uh, Okay, so now on to the question. I'm building web applications with Postgres as a database in the back end. From one of my previous projects, I learned all about database migrations in the uh, Laravel Schema Builder. Here he provides a link. Luckily, I don't have to use PHP anymore, and I found a similar solution for Node.js. The basic idea is that you provide the changes you want to make to the database schema in JavaScript using a query builder. (coughs) These changes are then translated into proper SQL statements for Postgres or MySQL and applied to the database. Each set of changes is described in a separate file with a timestamp attached to it, and you also provide queries for rolling back the changes you described. So it's somewhat like a version control for your database. I really like the tools uh, Connects, they they link to connectsjs.org, provides me a... So it really likes the tools that provide it with, but I would love to have some more features like getting a description of the current schema or even a diff between two migrations. Do you know of any tools that do something like that? Do you keep a database structure? How do you keep a database under version control? And and how would you do that? Because I'm only using Postgres. I wouldn't mind losing compatibility to other databases if, if it gets me these features. But until now, I haven't found any simple tools that would easily allow developing and deploying my database schema step by step. It would be awesome uh, to hear your take on that and any uh, feedback that you have. Greetings and all the best for the future from Germany. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's some great feedback and an interesting question. What do you think, Mr. Dan? You're not going to go wrong with Postgres, no matter what you're using it for. <laughs> it, it treats your data right, and it has very flexible programming languages. <clears throat> so if you need a function, a database function doesn't exist, you can write it in Perl or Python or whatever language you want because they give you the tools to... to anyway, That's we're awesome. getting sidetracked. Um, 
I'm sorry you don't get to use PHP anymore because I think PHP is great and use it all the time. Uh, proper, he mentioned proper SQL statements. Um, I, I went and I looked at the, the Nexus, Next.js Next builder update and I selected the query output as Postgres. And it's putting quotes, double quotes around the relationship names. And while that is perfectly fine, you have to realize that there are problems with that. Um, if you do update quote books, unquote, that is different from update quote uppercase books, unquote. Because then you can have two different tables with uppercase and lowercase names. That's why they do the quotes. So uh, I tend to avoid using those quotes, and it just... Uh, I always use lowercase for my table names and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, look into that. See, see if that's an option. Uh, it probably won't bite you, but I would prefer not to have those double quotes in my SQL. Um, now, as for a diff between two migrations, I went and I asked the uh, Freenode uh, Postgres IRC channel, and they came up with um, three diff tools. One is called APG diff, another Postgres diff tool. Uh, one is called SQL Manager. Another is called SQL Ferry. Now, I've never heard of any of these before, and I've never used them, so I can't tell you anything about them. But I can help you with one of your other questions. Do you keep a database structure under version control, and how would you do that? I used to use a, uh, a Sybase based tool, and I cannot remember what it was called. I got it sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. It was a Windows-based tool, but it was wonderful for doing database design. You could do it all out in a, in a, in a graphical format, and it would generate the SQL. Oh, I cool. could even tweak that SQL to be specific to Postgres, and I still have it on my VM. I could r r load it up and run it, but I'm sorry I didn't think of that. Oh, that's great. Uh, when you're done, it, it allows you to define all the query, all the foreign keys and primary keys, and then it'll spit out the SQL for you. And you could even do versioning in that, if I recall correctly. Um, so that would generate your SQL, and then I would save that SQL to a file, and that's how I did the Freshports database for for many years. Uh, and then what I w but then eventually I got to the point of where I wasn't running Windows anymore. Right. So what I would do for when I was updating Freshports is I would just generate the SQL that I needed to change the schema and keep that aside for when I was upgrading and then just run it then. I didn't worry about rolling back or anything like that. Uh, because really, if you're running a uh, um, a proper staging and test environment, by the time you get to production, it should just work. But realistically speaking, if it doesn't work, you do need a fallback. So being able to roll back is a good idea. Uh, but... At the moment, I don't do anything like that. I depend on my database backups, with the, which I dump to disk to work. Uh, I have a daily script which tests the back backup to make sure it can load back in. Uh, I would also look at a tool called PG Admin, 
which may, you may find useful and that you can go in and inspect the tables. It, it can build the DDL for that table for you. Uh, I also used a tool called SQL Developer, which, believe it or not, is an Oracle tool, but it'll work with MySQL and Postgres. And uh, that's how I generated this huge database schema. Um, if you go to GitHub and look at freshports. Freshports. If you go right into the code, and then you go into the docs directory, and if you look for the physical database. Svg, that is the latest version of the physical database, and I'm sure that I generated that with SQL Developer. There might be some other tool I have on here that I generated it from, but basically that took the DDL and laid it all out, and then I had to move tables around so they were um, gathered nicely. But having a diagram like that is very useful when it comes to um, thinking about modifications of your database. So I suggest you also do that. Databases and websites are two of my favorite things to play with. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Well, that's a, there's a lot of good suggestions there. So maybe uh, maybe this is a good opportunity, too, if any of our audience members have any tools they like or alternative uh, JavaScript libraries or, or really anything that would fit in this space. Uh, hey, let us know. Send us some feedback. Okay. That's a very good idea. Yeah. Um. Up next, let's see here. Okay, we've got Christopher Valerio writing about ZFS configuration on a new System76 oryx pro hey that's exciting glad to hear about it hey right hi excellent show i really like what you do hey thank you i'm 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 thinking about buying a new oryx pro mostly for cloud development openstack vms containers etc and some 3d modeling for 3d printing and some light gaming i do have an extra 2.5 inch disc and one m2 ssd so i will have plenty of discs plenty of storage and i would like to use zfs I tried LVM as a, as a volume manager before on a similar laptop, and performance wasn't great. I like Arch Linux mostly, and they have plenty of occupation that I can that I can test with. But I'm new to ZFS, and most of the time, I read that ZFS works perfectly on FreeBSD. But this is a laptop made for Linux. I want to take advantage of the M2 SSD as a read-write cache. What would you recommend me to do when installing this new system, and is is ZFS too much, or should I just keep using LVM on ext4 but with a better configuration? Thanks a lot. Greetings from Costa Rica. Well, I can guess what your answer is going to be, at least in terms of uh, if he should use ZFS or not. Well, I what is the new brand? True True OS, I think, is the yes. latest. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the, the name brand of PCBSD. Yes, I I would honestly consider. TrueOS and install that and see how that goes. Um, you may not, I don't know if you can do any mirroring, but that's what I would do if you had two disks of close to similar size. I would, I would do some mirroring just so that, you know, if one disk dies, you still get the other one. It gives you time. You can still use your laptop. Um, you can use the, the, um, the M2 SSD for something, whatever you wanted to use it for. Um, but yeah, I, I would try true OS and see how that goes. If you don't like it, it, if it doesn't do everything that you need on the laptop, 
go ahead and install whatever Linux you want and use ZFS on there. But yeah, ZFS on Linux is a perfectly feasible use of ZFS. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I would still point you to uh, the, the FreeBSD ZFS documentation is, is really quite useful. Um, especially when you're getting started with CFS, it has a pretty good, you know, uh, statement of a lot of like kind of the principles and things that you'll be working with, how it's all laid out. So even if you're not using FreeBSD, I would definitely recommend that. Um, Arch has some good tips. The ZFS on Linux project has some things as well uh, that you could look at. Thankfully, one of the nice things about it is if you can get, you know, if you can deal with the the OS specific parts, um, besides, you know, some differences between the Linux implementation and like FreeBSD or Illumos or whatever, mm-hmm. but by and large, it's it's the same file system. So, you know, beyond that, you can kind of, most ZFS advice should apply to you. So that makes it a lot easier, I think. Okay. One more plug for uh, TrueOS. It will download the next update in the background and then tell you, hey, I'm ready to install this. Is that okay? And then you say, Sure. And it swaps the boot environments and reboots you, and you're in the new version. Yeah, if you don't like that, you cool. say, oh, go back to the old version, please, and you're back to where you were. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're looking for a ZFS-integrated yep. OS, true OS, yep. I mean, look no further. It, it, it is very nice the way they do that swap of, swap of the um, boot environments to give you the new update. And it, Seriously. Uh, give, give it a give it a try. If so, I if I was doing something like that, that's what I would try. Dan says, try True OS today. Uh, and thank you very much for that piece of feedback. That's uh, exciting to hear about that new. You know, oh, getting new laptops is very exciting. Uh, so good luck with it. I think ZFS will be good. And you'll have to write back in, give us an update, and let us know. You know yes. how the whole thing goes. We'd be fascinated. Let us to know hear. what you did. Yep. Okay, so. Up next, something slightly different. Nigel Brownsey wrote in about password security and gave us uh, an article tip here today. Your password doesn't need to be so complicated. No, it doesn't. Um, th- they used to talk about you know having a lot of special numbers and letters and stuff like that, but we covered that, was that last week or the week before, where we said that Password complexity isn't as as hard as it used to be. It's better to be random. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I agree. Um, there's, a, there's a classic XKCD um, cartoon that talks about this. Basically, if you do one of these words where you're substituting letters for numbers and special characters, it says here... Basically, you only get 28 bits of entropy. I don't really understand what that means, but you only get 28 bits. And so basically, the difficulty to guess, um, three days at 1,000 guesses per second is all it would take to guess a password of that, that length. But if you take correct horse battery staple, which is four random words, that has 44 bits of entropy which is 550 years at 1,000 guesses a second. So it's hard. So basically, if you take a longer password, it's much harder for someone to guess or even get to. Um, And that's why the current NIST standards 
I believe was 48, 48 characters max minimum. Uh, don't set a maximum any less than 48 or 64 characters. It was something like that. But yeah, use a password manager. Um, choose long passwords. Choose them as long as the system will allow. And complain to the people when they only allow, say, 12 characters. And enable two-factor authentication because that should make it much easier. Don't reuse passwords ever. Oh, yeah. I remember what article was. It was uh, um, uh, Tori Hunt's uh, analysis, the password dump. Remember that? The 326 million passwords that I have sitting on my... Yeah. Yeah. And it found that as he got higher and higher up, most of the passwords were already in use. So a lot of people use other people's passwords. Your password is not unique unless it was generated by by a password manager. Then chances are it's unique. But you making a password up, no. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Uh, not as easy. Isn't that funny? I mean, it's like one of those things you would think, and so it's really interesting to see it uh, borne out in the data, so to speak. Yes. So, yeah. Ha- have a read through, through this... Um, rather short article and see what comes of what you think and let us know okay so hey thank you nigel for that uh for that link there that's fascinating and adds to our discussion up next and our final piece of feedback today uh, is a letter from jonathan meek writing about postgres password hashing and backups hey dan and wes I've been researching how to hash and salt passwords in Postgres, as well as, you know, general good DB practices. But I'm not finding any clear resources. I'm just trying to be a responsible craftsman instead of the software equivalent of the shop teacher who's missing fingers. Do you guys know of any good resources out there? Also, with backups, since the passwords are salted and hashed, backing up is not an issue, is it? I'm just trying to think outside the box, since that worked last time and finding the disaster lurking in my backups that I sent in a previous email to you all keep up the great work and I love listening to you guys on my runs you keep up the great work yourself there Jonathan and thanks for writing in okay what do you think about this Dan well there, there is a um, uh, um, I'm guessing he's talking about passwords other than for a Postgres user he's probably talking about passwords for his application or his website and he's going to store them in the database so i know that postgres has a whole pg crypto library so you can use those functions there um in the back end to operate on on this stuff so it might be a better idea actually to do it in the front end and then pass a hash into the database and have it check Because then, then yeah. Anyway, right. It should be hashed, um, hashed as soon as possible. Yeah. So not even in transit is it in in, in password form, but you'd have to do that at the front end. And uh, anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, I would yes uh, have a look around at what's in the PG crypto library, and. I don't think you have to get as complex as what, uh, who, who was it that we talked last week about someone they had a password hashing uh, approach. Basically, you could, do, you, you could do that. You could hash it and then actually encrypt it 
if you wanted to get really serious. But I agree. Hashing and salting something should be enough for what you're doing. Unless you're really, really worried about people grabbing the hashes and then decrypting them or something. Yeah. Actually, what I do is I encrypt my... I think I wind up encrypting my hashes after creating a hash because then you actually... It is of no use to anyone. It's not even useful in a rainbow um, tree because it's just an encrypted value. They don't even know what the original value was hashed as unless they get the code, which they might, but they shouldn't. But yeah, I don't think I've really answered your question, but yeah, use the PG crypto stuff that's already in there and you should be able to do exactly what you want to do once you settle on something. It's not that difficult to do a SHA-256. doesn't take that long. So just a SHA-256. Yeah, the other thing I'll point you to um, is, is uh, I'm sure our audience can recommend some good things just about you know current state of the art. Oh, yes. Um, but also from time to time on this program, we've covered um, you know different practices that some of the big names in the industry, um, you know, like LastPass or Dropbox, other things. They've had rather detailed articles about just, just how they treat the passwords that they store. Um, so you might you might look there as well. Yes, thank you. I was a bit low on stuff for that. Sorry. Let us know what you wind up doing, please. Others will be interested. Yeah, and if we find anything, we'll make sure we add it to the show notes. And uh, yeah, let us know, and we can have more discussion. Uh, you can send us feedback at uh, go to the go to the contact page, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, or you can find us both on Twitter or techsnap.reddit.com. And that brings us to the final segment of today's TechSnap program. That's right, it's the Roundup. We didn't have quite enough time to do a deep dive into any one of these stories, but they're still worth checking them out. Consider them as homework for both you and us. First up, the HDFS juggernaut. There's been a lot of focus on MongoDB, Elastic, and, and Redis as data stores that are commonly exposed on the internet, but it turns out maybe maybe we've been missing one. HDFS. Now, I read this. I said, what the hell is HDFS? So I had to go and look it up. It's a dupe distributed file system. Is that? I, I think that's what it that's is. That's correct. Yep. So I've never used it. I've heard of Hadoop before, but never used it. So basically, it's a file system. And yeah, like anything else, it can be misconfigured and left open on the internet for anyone to go and use and abuse. So seriously, folks, if you're if this shouldn't even be on a public IP address, why is it on a freaking IP address? It should be hidden there. <laughs> Put stuff like that on non-routable addresses. What the hell, folks? Rent rent a DigitalOcean droplet for a day and just scan your IP address range and see what's going on. Oh, that'd be a fun see? thing to 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 do to talk talk about how to do on this program yep because that is yeah exactly you know just like see where you're vulnerable yeah i've got um a shell account on um uh i'm not gonna name who it is but it's just a free, free account and i just log in there and 
can I tell net to that address at the, the, there? Can I run Nmap and see anything there? Mm-hmm. Nope. Okay, good. Excellent. Just, just what I wanted. Just do it. Have 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 a connection outside your environment they can look in on. Just don't scan it from inside because that's totally different. Scan it from outside and see what you can see. Good advice, I think. Mm. Okay, so moving on because this is the roundup after all. Mm -hmm. Plans for partitioning in Postgres 11. What's this all about? Postgres 11, there's a new version coming out of the partitioning scheme. And reading through this, I recognize three, four, five, six, six of the names, including the author. I'm sure I could look at it closer and figure out what's going on. So basically, there's been a whole bunch of um, plans for partitioning. When we talk about partitioning, it's not it's not like partitioning a hard drive. It's partitioning the data. And that allows much faster access to the data that you're interested in. Because when you accumulate a lot of data, the old stuff isn't so interesting. It's the newer stuff that you wind up querying on for some kinds of data. And so this new partitioning scheme is going to help you in that quest for getting your data faster. Now, I have to admit, I cannot recall the solution that that they're talking about, but there's eight or nine folks here all talking about doing d- different things. So, for example, um, if you need order data from a partition table and the ordering matches the partitioning scheme, you can skip a whole section of the of the query plan, which is the merge append. Um, so what they're doing is they're, is they're taking advantage of how the data is stored in the partition to shorten the query time. So that's just one example of the th- things that they're doing. Um, it, it's kind of difficult to get into this without explaining how queries are run. And the query planner is one of the most powerful things in Postgres. Um, very simple example. We, we could select one password hash out of 360 million rows on this little server sitting behind me, not fantastic hardware at all, in, in less than 100 milliseconds. And that's just because Postgres knows what it's doing when it comes to ordering data. That's awesome. It's pretty amazing. Well, cool. so, this is interesting. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited to see what uh, what comes of that. And it sounds like we have a lot to look forward to in Postgres 11. It'll be less than a month or so before this goes to um, 11, I think, because it's Postgres 10 is already at beta 3. So that'll come out. But then once that gets done, Postgres uh, version 11 will have a lot of amazing stuff in the partitioning field. Excellent. Well, I can't wait. Okay, so next up, speaking of uh, releases... We're going to jump over to the Debian project. Let's see here. Debian policy. Packages should be reproducible. Yep. And what they mean by reproducible is that when you build a binary, it is indistinguishable from the previous binary you built from the same source. 
So there's no timestamps. There's no timestamp differences. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that can be different, despite the fact that the programs will do exactly the same thing. Having them binary identical is helpful. Yeah. It means that you can do a diff or a hash on something, and you know it's identical. You know it's the same value. So that means that it, it, it improves the security of what you're getting. It lets you have this like one-to-one relationship between the source version and the binary version. Mm-hmm. So you can, yep. you can actually know that, yes, yep. okay, that is, I can go look at that in GitHub and that's what it is or whatever. Yep. Independent of when you compiled it, yes. Yeah. So you compile it today, you compile it a month from today, you get the exact same bits in the binary. It's cool to see, you know, Debian um, slowly progressing down this road. There's been a lot of really good work done and mm-hmm. they ship a ton of software. Yeah. So for them to do it really shows that you know, at least yep. at least in the the open source world, like this is something we can do. FreeBSD has been doing some work in this area. Oh yeah, well that's awesome as well. Yes, I have. We'll have yes, to highlight that on the on the next program. Another one, yes, okay. not not here, not here, but stay tuned. Debian, Debian, it's Debian's day today, and well deserved at that. Okay, so maybe maybe you're aware that uh, turns out optical. Optical networking, it's a big thing. You know, fiber optics runs a lot of the world, but you you don't know that much about it. You want to know more about it. Dan's always talking about SFP and other things, and you're like, what's going on? We've got a, a handy-dandy presentation, PDF, and a video. Everything yep. you always wanted to know about optical networking, but we're yep. afraid to ask. I should have read this before I started into optics. Yeah, it's it seems really handy. Like it's got a, a a good rundown from a pretty much like you don't know anything to some of the intricacies of what goes on and 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 how this technology gets used. So, yeah, and so, without too much, you know, there's not a ton of math, so yeah, it's it's understandable. No, it's not. Person. Yeah, I like it. I like it too, and it really does a good job of unders- underscoring like why this technology is used and how often it's used and the kind of, you know, data throughput uh, that it's responsible for in the in the world's backbone. So that's awesome too. Not every day we think about that sort of thing. Yep. And there's a link to both the PDF slides and to a video. Yeah, you said that. And yeah, this would be great. The video is a tutorial I think the guy did. Yeah. Based looks, on the slides. It looks like a lot of fun. So uh, let us know yeah. if you like it. Moving on. In the theme of looking at things out in the public taking a look at public puppet servers. Yes, and this is embarrassing. If you don't know Puppet, it's a configuration management system that contains information to deploy systems and services in your infrastructure. You write code which defines how a system should be configured, e.g. which software to install, which users to deploy, how a service is configured, etc. It's basically a client-server model. Clients periodically pull the configuration from the configured server and then apply it locally, and everything is transferred over TLS encrypted connections. But Puppet uses TLS certificates to authenticate nodes, and you can actually configure it so that it gives you a new cert if you don't have one. Hey, I'm here, I need a cert. And that's okay if you control who connects. But if you can connect directly over the network, guess what? Don't put it on the internet. Put it on a, v, a VLAN, a VPN or something. 
fire up open VN, open V open VPN and have everything come in that way. Don't put it on a public IP address. Yeah, exactly. They go into a little bit more detail about, you know, just like just what some of the mistakes people are making um, by doing this and uh, some of the techniques they use to to find it out. I, I think Puppet actually discourages people from using the approach that they're taking advantage of. But yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you, you can't fix some things. And if you can, you know, yeah, I think like you're saying, yeah, like if you, you know, it's not that much operational overhead, at least in most cases, to to have something like a VPN or other private network where you can, you know, hmm. have firewall the yeah. things that you can keep yeah. them separate, yeah. only expose yeah. exactly what you need to to provide the services mm-hmm. that you have to. Uh, yep. You'll always be better off. Yes. Okay, so uh, this next one is uh, maybe also a little bit frustrating for some homeowners out there. Airbnb's preferred smart lock vendor accidentally bricks 500 door locks. Oh, that doesn't sound Oops. good. 500. Yikes. We uh, notified you earlier, dear customer, uh, about a potential issue with your L6, LS6i lock. We are sorry to inform you about some unfortunate news. Your lock is among a small subset of locks that had a fatal error rendering it inoperable. After a software update was sent to your lock, it failed to reconnect to our web service, making a remote fix impossible. Yikes. Yeah, that's no that's no good. That's not what you want to hear as a consumer. But uh, I'm surprised, honestly, that we don't hear about this thing more often. I mean, you should be able to, to catch I, it in your QA, but I'm surprised that, that it... Well, I, I had my Amazon Echo get bricked by an update. Is that right? Yeah. They offered me two... They offered that I could buy a new one for 100 bucks, or they'd ship me two Echo Dots for free. So I took the two Echo Dots. So I have one in the office and one in the living room. Okay. That's, that's so, yeah, it does happen. Reasonable. It does happen. Because, you know, reasons. Um, what I find interesting is they say if the back portion of the lock is returned to us so the software in the lock can be updated – It'll take five to seven days. Or we can ship you a replacement interior lock for you to replace, and you can send the faulty lock back to us. And that's 14 to 18 days. And I don't see why it takes longer. You'd think it would be the reverse, if anything, maybe. Yeah, because maybe they're saying you have to ship us the lock first. Oh, maybe. Yeah, which I think is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's frustrating. Yeah. Other returns um, I've had, it's, you know, like, all right, well, like, we'll bill you if you don't yep. ship us the one that you... So. Correct. That, so that's that, that's what That's what Ankyo did with mine, which the, the, when when my unit died, they shipped me a new one, which I have to ship back, ship back the old one. I was supposed to do that Monday, but <laughs> here it is Tuesday, and I haven't shipped it yet. Uh-oh. So anyway, yeah, this is unfortunate. And imagine how inconvenient it is if... if you're showing up there to get in. This is your this is your bed for the night. Yes, and you can't get in, and the 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 landlord lives Elsewhere. somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yeah, oh. that's, that's a little bit of a night nightmare. Well, hopefully they figure out and get some better, you know, better QA or further testing in their pipeline, and that it doesn't happen to anyone else. Yes, yes, yes. And that brings us to the final story in today's roundup. I bought a book about the internet from 1994, and none (laughs) 
of the Lynx Worked, a tragic tale by Ernie Smith over at Motherboard. That's right. It is very funny. It is really true. Uh, you know, I've seen some similar pieces over in ours uh, talking about Android Android versions and just like, especially with mobile OSs and how connected they are yeah. to the web. You just, they don't, you know, old versions don't make any sense anymore. We don't have, we, we have these things that are frozen. And if you don't have people like archive.org, et cetera, having, you know, fully crawled backups, you, you'll just lose this stuff. I remember buying books explaining gopher oh fun and i can't i can't remember the other ones i had i don't know if i still have them i don't think i do i was just having a quick look but i can't see um but yeah i, th- I think i wound up so- selling them or giving giving them away or something but yeah it, it's like internet for dummies when that existed <laughs> yeah exactly like that uh well, that's that's fun. What a what an interesting era. Hopefully, we have some history to remember after all of these things go dark on the internet. The Rolling Stones may have been the first major band on the internet in 1994. The band not only launched a website to promote its album Voodoo, it actually streamed a concert live on the platform in November of that year using an online provider called Mbone. For some reason, wow! You can actually wa- watch a video of the concert here. That's impressive. <clears throat> I mean, I can't yeah, that, imagine how good a video that would have been, but still, that's... 94, that's 23 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that is impressive. Streaming video makes it... Now, uh, there is a company called Wanna Creek CD-ROM, um, and they had CD-ROM.com, and their job was to sell you software that you couldn't download because... Everyone was on dial-up. And right. You, okay, you, yeah, I remember that. You couldn't download a program like that. It was just too big. You had to go, you needed to get a physical copy. So they, they built a thriving business based on people, da- you know, not downloading and just getting all their data on a CD-ROM. And that is where uh, FreeBSD sort of got started. They also did some Slackware stuff, I think. Oh, yeah. Right. Wait. Um, and I can't remember what else they had there. But yeah, that was uh, Bob Bruce, Bill Swingle was there, Jordan Hubbard was there, a whole bunch of people whose names I cannot remember. But that, I know that is where I first met um, Bill Swingle, I'm sure. Yeah, ha <laughs> ha, look at that. Jordan Hubbard, I've heard of David, but I never met him. Um, Bob Bruce, I've met Bob Bruce many times. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, I also know um, oh, uh, Kelly and Len. That they, they both work there. They no no longer work there, but they they live uh, in Walnut Creek still. Um, they they let me sleep in their spare bedroom one night uh, when I was attending. Look at you. A conference uh, uh, in Monterey. Uh, Len drove the truck down to Monterey, and Kelly and I took her uh, Miata convertible. Ooh, fancy. And that was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, look at you with these. That, that, that's, that's some good history right there. So anyway, people might get a kick out of this article. Uh, anything else you wanted to leave with our dear viewers before we get out no. of here today? No. 
Perfect. Okay. Well, that's it for Tech Snap today. Thank you very much for joining us. If you would like to see more, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There, there's the archives of our show, the past generation of this show, and a whole bunch of other JB content. Go watch it all. It's a ton of great stuff. You can't go wrong. Plus, there's the live page. You can watch it live. There's the calendar, so you can find out when you should be here to watch it live. You can also join the IRC room. Super easy, super simple. And jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There, you can send us information, or the network is at Jupiter Signal. I'm at West Payne, and he is at TechSnap underscore Dan. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you here next week. Thank you.